Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Good morning. As uh, Kyle said, my name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor of City on a Hill, Forest Hills. If you don't know where Forest Hills is, uh, just go to the other end of the orange line, southwest. People do live out there, I promise. It's right in the middle of Jamaica Plain. Uh, and we actually uh, connect to multiple Boston neighborhoods. And so Jamaica Plain, Roslindale, Dorchester, Mattapan, High Park, Roxbury, all kind of come together there. You can get there by public transit uh, within a few minutes. And so we have people from all of those different communities who all kind of come together there at Forest Hills. And so this morning, I do have the honor of preaching for you, uh, you know, Pastor Aaron, I, I, I love him to death, and he and his family they just had, have had such a tough year with, you know, being doing jury duty. Uh, Aaron got to play Law and Order for like four months, and then um, his family and just the sickness have been, been in his family. And so I'm just honored to be here this morning to be able to teach God's word for you. And so uh, as as Kyle read, we're going to be ending at the uh, end of John two, and then going through most of John chapter three. And so as we look at the end of John 2, um, these are some really intriguing words. Um, I want to reread these so that we see what John is trying to get across to us. He says, now when he was in Jerusalem, talking about Jesus, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So to back up a little bit, last week we covered how Jesus went into the temple and turned over the tables. He saw what was happening in his father's house, that it had become a house of trade and not a house of prayer and worship to the Lord. And he goes in and flips over the tables and that this was something that pointed to the fact that Jesus was not just a mere teacher, he was not just a mere prophet, but he was the Messiah, the promised one who was called to come and make all all things new, to cleanse the temple, but not just cleanse the temple, but to cleanse our hearts. And so many people saw the signs that Jesus was doing and they believed in him. But then something curious in verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. It says that Jesus did not believe in them. Uh, one of the best things that someone can say to you is, is I believe in you. But imagine you're sitting there with your, your college counselor or your boss at work and they say, I don't believe in you. I don't think you have what it takes. That's exactly what Jesus just told them. I am not entrusting myself to you. Literally, I do not believe in you. Now, they believe, right? That, that's a good thing that they believe in Jesus. Well, yes and no. They saw the signs, some belief, I guess is better than no belief, but they were attracted to the power of Jesus in good times, but it simply stopped there. The faith that requires more than Jesus's life, death, and resurrection will easily fade because if we follow Jesus if, or we follow Jesus when, our faith will crumble when life gets hard. If we say to Jesus, I'll follow you if you give me the right career, or I meet the right person, our faith will falter when those things crumble. I will love you if you never let anything bad happen to me, our faith will fall apart. And so Jesus seeing them and seeing their hearts, knowing the type of faith that they have, it says that he did not entrust himself to them or believe in them. And, and this is a type of belief that would intrigue them about Jesus, but not a type of belief that would save them. 
Jesus knew that they needed something more, that they needed something greater, that they didn't just need a better life, they needed a new life. Jesus did not come to be an addition to an already okay life. He came to give you an entirely new life in him because he knows what's in us. And he as God knew everything about them. And so some of you find yourself in that place this morning, the same place as the people at the end of John 2. Jesus to you is intriguing. He's a good teacher. He seems like the type of guy who could get you out of a jam. And if you're here this morning and you're seeking and you're just kind of intrigued by Jesus, we're so glad that you're here. But I want you to know this. God wants more for you than a faith that is simply about God getting you out of your problems. He wants more for you than for you to love him when things are going well in your life. He has more for you. And what Jesus wants to do is he wants to deepen and ground your faith in him because he knows your heart as well. He knows every fear. He knows every desire. He knows every struggle. He knows every sin. He knows every longing. He knows everything about you. And he doesn't see what's in you and think, man, I'm really impressed. He didn't look at them and he wasn't impressed by their faith. And he wasn't saying, man, these are the the quality followers I've always been looking for. I just need to give them a few pointers toward a better life. And some have wondered as you read the end of chapter two, like, how do you read this? Do you read this as a conclusion of what was said? Or do you read this forward uh, into the the coming chapters? And as we look at chapters three through five, we actually begin to see that this is Jesus beginning to unpack how he takes unsteady faith and makes it steady. In chapters three through five, we see four people, four different stories, people in different places of life, and Jesus has unique conversations with them to ground their faith in him. Each person with a different story and a different background and a different fear and a different longing that Jesus knows each one of them inside and like he knows you and I inside out, and he helps them to truly believe. See, Jesus sees what's in us and he's not impressed by it, but he also doesn't turn away from it. He presses in, he goes in. And the first way we're gonna see this this morning is in John 3, as we look at the moral skeptic. There is good news for the moral skeptic. What is a moral skeptic? This is a person who honestly has it all together. The person who is a good and moral person, they're trying to do the right things. You work a good job. You really don't need anything on the surface. And that's Nicodemus. Nicodemus, as it says in verse one, it was a man of the Pharisees. Now in the church, oftentimes the Pharisees get a bad rap. We we tend to think of them as extremists. We tend to think of them as just really mean people. Honestly, they were kind of the moral glue of the community. They were your civic leaders. They were the type of people that would like coach your kid's soccer team. They were hardworking, upstanding, diligent leaders in the community who were just really nice, respectable people. And we see here that he is a ruler of the Jews. This is someone who would have been your your city council person. This is someone who everyone would have looked up to with an impeccable record. This is the best of the best. And we see in this man, Nicodemus, that he's even a step above the normal Jewish person. His name is a Greek name. He's the, he has the type of name that sounds like old money. You know what I'm talking about? Like a, name, a name like Tad or Hampton. You know, like it just sounds like you come from a long line of Vanderbilts or Rockefellers. He is a very wealthy, well-to-do man. 
And some of you see yourself a lot like Nicodemus. You feel like I'm a, I'm a really a pretty good person. I don't do a whole lot of wrong when I look at comparing myself to other people. I'm, I'm a pretty moral person. And for some of us, this is honestly why we have a hard time sharing the gospel with our neighbors, especially in an affluent city, is we look at other people and say, what does that person really need? Dave's like a really nice guy. What is, does he really need the gospel? But the story of Nicodemus shows us that the most moral people often need the gospel the most. Because he comes to Jesus knowing something's lacking in verse 2, and he comes to Jesus by night. Now, why does he go to Jesus at night? He goes when it's private. He didn't want anyone else to hear what he had to say. And there are at least two reasons that he would have done this. Number one is that when you were to take a question in the, in the Jewish world in public to a person, it was often to challenge that person's authority. And so you see all these questions and you'll see this through the gospel of John where the Pharisees would come to Jesus in, in public and they would ask him a question. It wasn't genuine curiosity. It was actually them trying to stump Jesus. And there was sort of a shame capital where the person who came out on top was honored and the person who did not was shamed. He comes to Jesus at night because he is genuinely interested in what Jesus has to say. Something about Jesus is captivating to him. And here's this guy with everything, the guy with, with no problems. In fact, verse 10 tells us he's the leader or teacher of Israel. He is the top of the top, the best of the best, is lowering himself to come at night to an untrained teacher from Galilee looking for answers. Verse two, we see that he calls him rabbi, a teacher, game, respects game here. I'm respectful, but a little short of calling you Lord. And he says, there's got to be something about you. We know that you are a teacher from God for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. You have to be from him because you're doing something that nobody else can do. In other words, you have something I don't have. You have something that I can't accomplish, something that I can't reach, something that I need. God has to be with you. And here's why I call him a moral skeptic. And maybe this is where you find yourself too. If you're a moral person, deep down, you know something is missing. If the, the way that you grade yourself is on how good you can be at following the rules, how good you can be at doing all the right things, you deep down know you're not quite good enough. There's this low-grade anxiety that you just need to be a little bit better. And so for the moral person, there's always this feeling that you need to be a little bit kinder, that you need to be a better employee, you need to be a more diligent student, you need to be a more loving spouse, you need to be a truer friend. And so Jesus seems interesting to you because what happens is, is you just see Jesus as a way to get you over the hump a way to make you be a little bit better. There's something Jesus has that I don't quite have. If I can just add him to an already pretty good life, I'm gonna be okay. But here's why we're skeptical. When we don't see Jesus as everything we need, we really question whether we need him or not. You're still not sure. But Jesus knows your heart. And we see the good news here for the moral skeptic because Jesus gets right to the heart of the problem. Verse three, he uncovers the problem that the moral skeptic Nicodemus and we have. He answers him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of 
God. This is not what Nicodemus was hoping to hear. It's like when someone says, hey, how, you ask a question, like, how do I get out of debt? And they're like, well, spend less and earn more. It's like, I, I didn't want to hear that. I didn't want to give up Starbucks. I didn't want to give up Dunkin'. Like, I don't like that answer. Nicodemus wanted just a, a couple of tips, a couple of little pointers to help him be a little bit better because as a good Orthodox Jewish leader who had spent his entire life teaching other people how to get close to God, how to get into the kingdom, he's thinking, I just need to be as good as possible. Jesus, you're a little bit better than I am. So what's the secret sauce? And Jesus throws the gauntlet down and he says, truly, truly, which means is really literally amen, amen, or as the Lord wills, let it be sort of like from God's mouth to your ears. Unless you were one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Jesus repeats this same phrase two more times in verse five, a little bit differently. He says, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then in verse seven, you must be born again. Unless this is the only way There's no addition to your life that's gonna get you over the hump. You must. This is an absolute necessity. This is what you need most as a person. And what Jesus does is highlights the problem by shifting the question from what do I need to do to be a good person? What do I need to do to be right? What do I need to do to be saved? To can I even do it? And for the moral person, we have to understand the question shifts to can I even meet the moral standard of God? You have to be born again. So what does it mean to be born again? Verse four, we see Nicodemus completely misses this. He said to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Jesus tells this old respected man who'd already lived a very full life that he needs to be born again. And this has led some to think that this is sort of Nicodemus looking back on his life and saying, I'm too old to change. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. There's a story of of Winston Churchill uh, being confronted by Billy Graham after the Second World War. And Billy Graham is sharing the gospel with Winston Churchill. And Churchill says, it's just too late for me. But we see that actually Nicodemus is just confused. He says, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's thinking about the mechanics of this and goes, that sounds impossible. How could this possibly be? But the second way that Jesus describes this helps us understand what he's getting at. Verse five, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now this should have been a a clue for Nicodemus, this teacher of the law of water and of the spirit. And we see that this actually mirrors Ezekiel chapter 36. In Ezekiel chapter 36, God is calling the people back to himself. In verse 32, he's calling to the house of Israel. He wants them to be a holy people. He wants them to be set apart. He's gonna vindicate his own holiness. Uh, He says, he's gonna take them as a nation and gather them together and bring them to his own land. And he says in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. See, that's that word again. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause, that's a beautiful word, cause, to give you new desires to obey from a new heart 
cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In other words, to be born again means that you need a new and clean heart. And here's the problem that that reveals. Your absolute best is not enough. Your absolute best is not enough. It's going to take being born again because Nicodemus represents the absolute best person that you could imagine. His morals, his efforts, his pedigree, his integrity are impeccable and they all come up short. There's nobody who gets it more right than Nicodemus. And what this means for you and I is that you can take your best day on record when you're the nicest, you curse the least, you give the most, and you're the least selfish, and it's not enough. You need to be born again as something completely new. It means you can't even compare yourself to other people. This passage destroys moral superiority. I can't look at another person and, and grade on a curve and say, well, I'm doing better than them and that's gonna get me into God, a good relationship with God. I have to be something completely new. No matter how good you are, it's not enough. And we see in verse six that you can't produce this, that that which is born of the spirit, uh, born of the flesh is the flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. You can't produce this on your own. And we see why it says this, because in verse seven, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Ray Ortland drives this point home talking about this passage because he says in verse seven, you is personal, not anybody else not in comparison to anybody else, you have to see your own need before God. Must. This is authoritative. Jesus says that this is the only way. And if you push back on this, if you have a real problem with this, you may not be born again. You see it as gracious and you have to be born again. To be born again is passive. In other words, this takes a miracle. You need a miracle you, you can't suck up enough willpower to do this. You, you can't just bring yourself into spiritual life just like you couldn't bring yourself into the physical world. It takes an absolute miracle. But here's the good news. Because you must be born again, you can be born again. We see the solution comes through Jesus. Ray Ortland says, my eternal destiny hangs on something only God can do for me. Jesus saying you must be born again is the best news you could ever receive. It frees you from the tyranny of being true to yourself. Think about this at the end of chapter two. Jesus sees what's inside of you and he doesn't trust you. So why should you trust yourself? Why should you trust all the desires that are going on inside of your heart? Why should you trust all the wisdom that you can muster up? Because my heart is full of all sorts of conflicting desires, wants, and ideas. I can't even decide what I want for dinner tonight, much less the direction of my life. Which one should I trust? In fact, the only way to be true to yourself is to be found in Jesus. And what happens as we each become more like Jesus is that we don't become like each other as the God crafts us into the type of people that we're supposed to be, the truest version of ourselves. And the solution that Jesus proposes is that this is done through the work of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse eight in John three. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of 
the Spirit. It's like the wind. You can't see it, but, but you know where it comes from, or you, and you don't know where it comes from, but you can see the effects. And, and in the first century, you definitely didn't have the, the, you know, the meteorology that we have today. You definitely would have known these things. But even here in, in New England, you can't see the wind, but you certainly can feel it. If you're walking in, in downtown, you're walking down Commonwealth Ave in, in January, you're like, why do I live here? Uh, you're, you're in the middle of a nor'easter. You see the effects of the wind, even though you can't see it. And this is where Nicodemus actually starts to get hung up. This is the skepticism coming out. Verse nine, he says, how can these things be? And here's where Jesus does something masterful. There's never been anyone smarter or wiser than Jesus. He gives us a masterclass on how to share the gospel with a skeptic. And for some of you, the objections that you have to Christianity are things like the Bible and science. You know, how does creation work? All the miraculous stuff. I can't really give myself to that. Or maybe it's a moral argument. You're like, how does God allow bad things to happen to good people? But Jesus shows us that you've got to make the main thing the main thing. He shifts the attention right back to the main thing. He says in verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Talking about the the inner workings of the way that God saves a person. He says, but you can see the outward work of it. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we see, we speak of what we know. He's kind of speaking for the disciples who've experienced salvation and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. You've seen the life change that happens in a person that you may not understand the exact way that God rescues a person by the work of the spirit, but you can certainly see the change in that person. You can see the way that God is making them to look more like Jesus, taking someone who was once an enemy of God and makes them a lover of God. And in verse 12, he says, if I've told you earthly things, in other words, that you must be born again, putting your faith in me and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? The inner workings of how this works. In other words, it doesn't matter if you get all the questions you have answered unless the deepest problem's taken care of, it's not gonna matter. You need to be made new. You need to be born again. Tim Keller famously said that if you have all these issues with the Bible, whether it's creation or the miracles or this or that, it really doesn't matter if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. But the main thing is, did Jesus raise from the dead? And if he did raise from the dead, we can trust him with the rest of the stuff. The main question is you need to be born again. He brings it back to the main thing and he brings it back to Nicodemus's problem. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. No one has ascended to the place that you need to go to be with God and you can't get there. And you can only get there by following the person who's been there. It's like the pirates of the Caribbean. Jack Sparrow said, if you want to find the Isle de Muerte, you can only get there by going with someone who's been there before. And he's saying, here's how you're born again. You have to look to the one who's been there. You have to look to the one who comes from heaven, the son of man, Jesus, the only one who's been in heaven, who came down for you. You have to look to him. And verse 14, he describes what this is like. He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted 
up. A little bit of background there. Moses in, in Numbers 21 is talking to the people of Israel and they're, they're grumbling and they're complaining, which is like their entire experience in the wilderness. Uh, why are we eating this weird rice cake? It was better for us back in slavery in Egypt. It's like, you people don't get it. And, and God sends fiery serpents to torment them. And look, I, I hate snakes. And the only thing worse than a snake is one that's on fire. So I can imagine this is a bad day. And the people cry out, we've sinned against you, God, please help us. And he directs Moses to take a bronze serpent, put it on a pole. And if the people were bitten by the fiery serpent, uh, they could look at that and they would be rescued. Now, was it the serpent itself on the pole that saved them? No, it was the promise of God to save based on trusting him alone. What Jesus is saying is, as much like that, if you want to be born again, you have to look at him lifted up. You have to look at the son of man who was lifted up, not on a pole like a bronze serpent, but on a cross to pay for our sins. You have to look to him alone. But in order to look up, what do you have to do? You have to look away. You, you can't do both. You can't look down at your life and look up at Jesus. You have to look up to Jesus. You have to look away from your own goodness. You have to look away from your own desire, your own desire to be in control because what we want is we want to be the king or queen of our own lives. I want to be the one who determines right or wrong. I want to be the one who sets the standards. I want the glory and the honor. And what we can often do is use Jesus as a means to get that. And that's really what Jesus is condemning in verses 23 through 25 is using Jesus means to an end. Rachel Gilson says, it is symptomatic of human sin and rebellion that we confuse God's good things with ultimate things. We always resist worshiping and honoring him. We prefer comfort to submission. So we take God's stuff and try to ditch God. We have to look completely away from ourselves and rest all of your hope on Christ alone so that he gets to be in control, so that he gets to set the standard and so that he gets the glory. And what Jesus says is that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. But we'd be remiss if we neglected why Jesus did this. I want us to look lastly at the reason. You have to see this. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The most famous verse in the entire Bible. Do you want to know why Jesus did this? It's because he loves you. It's that simple. He loves you. I want to say that one more time. He, he loves you. It doesn't say that God so loved the best. It says that God so loved the world. God so loved the worst. And we see the intensity of this love. And he says, for God so in this way, in this, with this magnitude, with this force, loved the world that he gave his only son. So that whoever, no matter where you come from, no matter your background, no matter what you've done, no matter how immoral or moral you may think you are, you will not perish if you trust in him alone. We see the intensity of his love that he's like the hero who would run into a burning building or dive into the ocean to save someone or race into the middle of traffic to rescue a child. He is that type of God. But we also see the cost of his love. 
that it costs God his very own son, the precious, beautiful Jesus, whom the Father delights in, was given for you so that you could be born again. But the reason he does this out of love is to show you as you already are. Look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He doesn't come to judge you or condemn you because he doesn't have to. We already are. It's like a building, uh, it's like a building inspector walking into a dilapidated building. He didn't make the building condemned. He just assessed that the building was already condemned. If we're honest, we know something isn't quite right about us. Sam Mulberry says that we all need to be born again because we know we were all born a little bit wrong and we all see it every time we get prideful. We see it every time we experience the misery or the consequences of our decisions. We, we experience this when we feel the aimlessness of our lives. And because God loves you, he wants you to be born again to not face fear or the condemnation that we're due. Look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. But you're gonna have to make a choice. You're gonna have to make a decision Verses 19 through 21, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does, does wicked hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God." You have to make a decision whether to come into the light or stay in the dark, whether to have your condemnation removed or to stay in it, whether to be born again or to just keep trying harder. And the reason that we're afraid to step into the light is we're afraid of being exposed. We're afraid of people seeing what we're doing. And for many of us, especially if you consider yourself a very moral person, your moral performance is simply you trying to hide your inadequacy. It's you trying to hide your insecurity because what if you had to admit to people that you weren't as great as you actually are? What if you had to admit that you're a prideful person? But going back to chapter two, Jesus knows it all and he wants to be new and he wants to heal it. We often come to Jesus like renovating an old house and we give Jesus the key to that room that we want him to work on. We want him to tidy up a little bit. And, and there are often those rooms in our houses that we think are fine and we'll, we'll get to them later. They're not that big of a deal. And there are other rooms of the house that we don't want even Jesus to see. But being born again is actually giving Jesus the master key to your life and saying, renovate me from the very foundations. Make me new. You have to be born again. So how do you know that you've been born again? As we close, just three things. Number one is you see that you need Jesus. As someone who's, I've been a follower of Jesus for over 20 years, I need Jesus as much today as I did then. You know you're born again if you daily and hourly see your need for Jesus. Secondly is you want Jesus. I, I want Jesus and I want you to want Jesus more than him getting you out of your troubles. I want you to want him because he's lovely and beautiful and worth it. And thirdly, you want to change to be like Jesus. You want to give him that master key and say, make me new in every area of my life. Look away from yourself Look to Jesus and be born again. Let's pray.